and welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Al-Ajba. Good evening. The pathway to becoming a licensed physician in the United States requires nine to 11 years of formal education, and all physicians are required to pass a series of three high-stakes standardized examinations called the United States Medical Licensing Examination, or USMLE, before they can be licensed to practice medicine. Most physicians also go on to become board certified in their specialty field, which requires an additional examination following their residency or fellowship training. Compared to physicians, nurse practitioners and physician assistants have a far shorter course of training, and both are required to pass one standardized examination to be licensed to practice. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Roy Stoller, an otolaryngologist and a board examiner who is here to help us understand the differences between the exams that medical doctors and nurse practitioners and physician assistants take. Dr. Stoller, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Roy, tell us about your training and how you became a board examiner for physicians certifying as otolaryngologists. As you know, it all starts in university. Most of us who major in science or don't major in science take at least up to 60 credits in the hard sciences. I was a psychometric psychology major. And as I went through these hardcore sciences, I really developed a sense of deductive reasoning, which I don't believe I would have developed had I not had to take these hard science classes. So all medical students complete that regimen, and then we take the MCATs, which is a very comprehensive exam to kind of standardize the, all the different students from across the country, because as you know, medical school is very competitive. Less than, you know, I'd say three out of 10 or four out of 10 eventually, eventually get in. Once I got into medical school, completed four years of medical school, which includes about 2,000 and more clinical hours where we're supervised we start to take our licensing exams. Um, The second year, we take the USLME1s. As we all know, that is one of the hardest exams uh, to pass. What we all say is study for six months and pray. It's written by PhDs in sciences, and they do not let up on us. Uh, We have to pass that exam to show we have the basis to continue. At the end of the four years of med school, we take part two of the UCLMEs, which include a didactic and a clinical part. Most of us now pass at at higher rates because we're getting more into the clinical sense. And then in our first year of internship and residency, which all states require at least one graduate medical education year, we take the third part. And we have very high passing rates uh, because we've all been weeded out and studied so much and we're kind of ready to go out there. So I believe it's between 90 to 98% of us pass, pass that exam. Yeah, and it's I, I always like to hear what different uh, subjects, different uh, physicians majored in. I was a sociology major, although of course, just like you and every physician, I still had to take all the hard sciences, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, calculus, biochemistry. But I did choose to major in sociology just because I found it really interesting. And you said you were you majored in psychology and psychometrics. Naran, what did you major in? I was actually physiology with a specialization in history of medicine. Oh, that's really an interesting major. 
Yeah, it was a little bit of more of a medical ethics. We went through a lot of the different uh, medical cases, end of life. Dr. Gavorkian in Michigan was very controversial at that time. And so uh, there was ethics, history of medicine in the United States, other countries, healthcare systems, and what's different. So, and that was a long time ago. So 90 to 92 to 93 is when I was doing that. But what we all had in common is no matter what we chose as a major, we all had to complete the same hard sciences. And of course, many physicians do choose to major in a science as well. I know many of my colleagues majored in biology or one of the other biological type sciences, zoology, some of them did. You know what's interesting, though? If we don't major in a science, it doesn't mean we get out of taking those courses. And I think that's a really important point, is that even when you're a philosophy major, for example, you still need to apply to medical school and be approved on the on the application list or for the prerequisites, you still need biochemistry, biology, chemistry, physics, and and a lot of those hardcore sciences regardless. So I think that's a really important point that you have to have a science background to really go get accepted into med school. And I think it's one of those things for me, I, I forget how hard it was and how much I went through. And it's something that's a bit of a bonding experience. I think if you talk to most doctors, you'll ask them and they'll all remember how awful organic chemistry too, for example, was for many yes. of us. <laughs> And everyone has that in common. What was amazing is I, I graduated early. I skipped some grades and I was one of the youngest in medical school uh-huh. and they had PhDs in my class. And oh my God, was medical school hard. You know, we're all straight A students now being put in the same uh, classes and working with these really intelligent, very accomplished people. It just was so competitive that it forced me to be the best I, I could be. How old were you when you went in? How early did you go into medical school? I I started med school. I was 22, uh, but I had finished high school at 16. So did I. And I I took a year off and started a master's in health science because I I really felt I needed to slow down. I I didn't think that was a good move that they pushed me through, through school so fast. Well, you want to have a uh, yeah, you want to have a better uh, ex- experience and more a little bit of life experience. I guess can be really helpful when you're going into medical school, and not that you have that much life experience in your early twenties, but at least there's something versus going straight through. I think there there's something to be said for that for a lot of people. I- I had my 21st birthday, my first year of medical school. I entered at 20. So I completely agree. Looking back, I often think that a few extra years, I shouldn't have been in such a hurry. A few extra years would have done. I felt that way too. I was 21. And when I, if I think what is one or two things I could change in my life, I would have taken a few gap years as they call it nowadays. It wasn't really an option because nobody was really funding me, but if I had, it would have been great to like backpack Europe or something awesome. Like some of the people I knew did instead of going straight through school. But getting back to the, the competitiveness, as you mentioned, and Roy, you're exactly right. The uh, the last acceptance rate that I have statistics on says that 39.6% of all applicants to medical school were accepted. And uh, it's quite a contrast to other programs like nurse practitioner schools, some of which boast a 100% acceptance rate for some of them. Uh, There's only 179 medical schools in the country. And uh, of those medical schools, they accept a little under 40% of all applicants. So they really do have to be the top. And the only people who are applying are people that meet the criteria. In other words, they've already taken those sciences and they've already taken the MCATs. And let's talk about the MCATs because that's really the first standardized test that most of us experience. And tell me what you remember about taking the MCAT. 
Oh boy. <laughs> I, I remember studying really hard because you're going at,、uh, over all those hard sciences that you did in college. And I, I remember we were tested in chemistry, biochemistry, biology, physics. Calculations, mathematics, deductions. And there was also、reasoning. some, I think, some writing on there and、It、some、was. English and things like that, too, just to throw a little, you know, make sure you weren't just focused on sciences. Right. Yeah. I, I took the MCATs twice, I believe.、Um, but man, it was, it, it, I guess I blocked it out. It is not a pleasant、uh, experience, only to be worsened by USLME 1. When、yes. you think the MCATs are bad. Well, yeah,、Holy、that's the、cow. thing. You, you think, oh, this is just terrible. And you don't realize at the time that this is just a drop in the bucket to what comes in the next phase. To me, so, that's actually the worst of all the tests,、uh, at least as I go back and think about it. I'm sure you guys probably agree. The USMLE one, they gave us about two months off to study for it. And, you know, every day we're hitting the books. And the year I took it, there was some sort of scandal or something where even fingerprinting us wasn't good enough. And, and so the, the, the results were delayed. And、um, I remember just sweating it, hoping that I just could pass. And, and to know, me, and that's the hardest part. You know, I, I read some of the flippant things on social media, like、um, I'm going to be a doctor. Oh, I'm going to be a nurse practitioner. I could have gone to medical school. 10% of my class dropped out. And, and I, I kind of don't get how people don't realize just because you get into medical school doesn't mean you're going to be able to complete it.、Um, it's not a guarantee, a letter of acceptance. I mean, it is, that, that's great to get a letter of acceptance. But the amount of work and dedication that you have to put in to get through,、uh, I, I don't believe anyone really realizes that except us who have completed it. You know, that's a really good point. And to me, also, Naran, step one was my wor- worst experience, aside from gross anatomy. My worst memory of my whole training was gross anatomy. And it's because I didn't realize when I, when I took gross anatomy, I, I studied the human body, the dissection. As it was laid out on the table. So the arm, it was、yes. an anatomic position. The arms were laid out with the palms up. And then when I went in to take the examination, instead of seeing the body like that, they had taken off the arm, they had flipped it around、uh, and inverted it and stuck a little pin in a structure of the arm. And then on top of that, instead of just saying, What is this structure? which is kind of what I expected, they said, What is the embryologic root of this structure? So, first of all, I had to imagine what did this arm look like, put it back in the position that I studied, which was hard enough. And then also to figure out what it was and even further what the question was actually asking me, which was really detailed. And of course, that was time. So, as I was sitting there sweating bullets and trying to figure out what was going to, what I, how I was going to come up with this answer, the little bell rang, ding, and we had to move to the next table. And that was just the beginning of my nightmare, which I still、uh, relive. Where, and I actually failed that examination. It was the only time I ever failed anything. I failed it miserably. About half of our class failed that exam. And I remember we were asked, every, they, this is medical school. I don't know if it's still like this now, but at the time they said at the end of our next lecture, and I had just found out I had failed it. So I was in shock. And they said, everyone who failed the exam, please remain behind. So, half the class gets up and leaves, and the rest, the other half of us, are sitting there just like mortified, dying. And then we found out, of course, that it was, it was kind of good to know we weren't the only ones that failed. And then we got some special tutoring so that we actually knew how to study appropriately. And 
thank God I passed the other ones because if you failed another exam, you failed the entire first year of medical school, you'd have to repeat the year. And potentially you, you might not even make it at all through med school as Roy pointed out. So that was a horrible experience. And then step one was also a horrible experience. And that was a matter of, we st- we got a month off to study. And I used to go to the law library because the medical school library was really bad. And uh, we would, not bad, but the law library was really nice. And I would get up at eight in the morning and go into the library and I would stay all day, take 30 minutes for lunch, go back, stay all night, have dinner, go back and did that, you know, like a 12 hour study day for a whole month, even, you know, seven days a week. You know, you're reminding me of my final exams when I had like 18 classes. I would literally start in the evening and just study the whole night through, go in, take the exam, come home, go to sleep, wake up, study the whole day into the night and then take the exam. And no one saw me for two weeks. It was like, I have to pass my finals. It was crazy. Well, I think what you both are talking about is this acquisition of expertise, which I love to talk about. And I actually studied in an area of the University of Washington where Bill Gates had done his middle of the night computer work. So he talks about why he always donates to the UW because there's this area where there aren't a lot of people. And it's sort of, it's not really unlocked 24 seven, but it, the lights are on and it's it's a very quiet place. Uh, it's a certain wing of the University of Washington. And that's where we spent, uh, my study partners and I, we spent all our time and sometimes it was overnight. And again, it's this sort of acquisition heading to the 10,000 hours of experience and learning and engrossing yourself in a subject so that you are literally an expert. And it's amazing even still, as much as we laugh about our gross anatomy, flipping parts over, which was so disconcerting to me in the final exams like you're talking about, um, I think when we're under the gun and we're in a situation that's an emergency or something, we draw on that. I routinely draw on my anatomic stuff I learned, on the histology, just so many things doing primary care that I still go back and think, wow, that's why I had to learn that. It was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. We're experts. And I think that's such a critical piece. And you have to put in the time to gain that expertise. Unfortunately, there's really no substitute for just logging 10,000 hours. hours and and no and doing it the correct way as I, I didn't in my first gross anatomy exam, but I had to learn how to do it correctly. And uh, so the step one that we take, just to recap, it's eight hours long, it's 280 questions, and it evaluates the student's mastery of science. And that's the first step exam that we take. Then this is at the end of our second year of medical school, which is typically our sciences, our foundation, although we are gaining clinical experience during that time too. But we really start our clinical years in the third year. And so after we finish our third year core rotations, which are internal medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics, et cetera, we then take another exam that's called part two. And that exam measures our clinical knowledge and our clinical skills, and it includes simulated patient encounters. And that exam is nine hours and it's 318 questions. And then after we graduate medical school and we get into our residency training, we then have to take a final step exam in order to be licensed as physicians. And that exam is two days long. The first day is seven hours of testing and it covers foundations of independent practice. And then the second day includes nine hours of multiple choice questions and computer-based simulations. 
First time pass rates, if we're going to talk about those, um, you know, the, for U.S. physicians, the most recent data we have would be those trained in the U.S. in 2015. The D, uh, DO degree, which is the doctor of osteopathic medicine, 91% of those uh, passed uh, step one or the first time passing rate. And then for MDs, it's 98%. And the pass rate for physicians who were trained outside the United States is closer to 89, a little bit lower. So 89%. So still most people passing those standardized examinations and you must pass them to move on. Now, Roy, you learned about something really interesting, which was that the National Board of Examiners did an experiment where they gave nurse practitioners a version of the USMLE Step 3. Can you tell us about that? You have to put that in context. So in, in this era, it's about 2008, 2006, and Libby Zion, unfortunately, dies in New York City uh, a teenager who ends up having a complication of medical intervention called serotonin syndrome, which at the time we really didn't know about. But um, politically, um, it is investigated and the powers that be come down on the medical education system and say that residents are spending too, too many hours in the hospital. So they, they cut our hours about 20%. So now you have resident physicians who are the backbone of the hospital system working 20 hours a week less. And when you multiply that out by the hundreds and thousands of doctors that you have, you now have a a void. Mary Mundinger in Columbia University is a PhD in nursing and she is the mother of modern nurse practitioning. She's on the board of United Healthcare, an insurance company. And they are constantly figuring out how to save money. She sees this as an opportunity to now package her nurse practitioners off as primary care practitioners. And although they constantly deny it, it was wrapped around so that they could replace family physicians. She hijacks the DMP degree, not a PhD. It is a doctorate degree that nurses use to educate other nurses and study nursing healthcare policy. And she now creates a doctorate that she can give her nurse practitioners. But what she's missing is equivalence. So she goes to the USLME boards and petitions them to give a watered down version of our part three. Now, again, in context, The USLME 3 by itself is not an exam that tests for clinical competency. To get to that point, you first have to graduate medical school, pass all the exams, pass all the courses, and pass USLME 1 and 2. So she's skipping all that and cherry-picking questions of our easiest exam. She now cherry-picks the DMPs candidates she's going to give it to. They're Columbia, University, Queen of the Crop, DMP candidates. And when they give this exam to them, they vary between 35% or 40% to 70% passing, and they can't ever get over that hump. So instead of stating, oh, we need to give them more education. So if we want to prove equivalence, what do they do? They lower the standards, change the exam, and put forth studies that really don't test equivalence but they pretend to to test equivalence. And they now have this pseudo manufactured nurse that looks like they can practice primary care. 
Right. It's, it's such an, it was such an interesting experiment and I think it didn't go the way they planned it to go. <laughs> so they, first of all, let me point out also, we mentioned that most of us studied for two months for step one. And there's kind of this adage in medicine about the step exams. They say uh, two months, two days, two number two pencils. In other words, you study for step one, two months, two days for step two, and you don't even study for step three because this is what you do every day. So you show up with your number two pencils. So remember that for most, if you ask most physicians, which was their easiest exam, they're going to tell you step three. So step three was the one that the nurse practitioners, the DNP candidates took. And they started in 2008 and they had 45 applicants that took this exam and they had a pass rate of 49%. And remember, this isn't even just the USMLE three that physicians take. This was a, as Roy said, a watered down version. In fact, the National Board of Examiners published a white paper and it stated, quote, the DNP certifying examination is not designed to replicate the USMLE assessment for medical licensure. It does not include the in-depth assessments of fundamental science, clinical diagnosis, and clinical skills that are provided through USMLE for physicians. So 2008 was the first time. 2009, they had 19 people test and only 57% passed. 2010, they tried it again, 31 candidates, 45% pass rate. Uh, 2012, they had a little bit of improvement. They 22 people took it and 70% passed. But then in 2013, of the 18 that took it, only 33% passed. And keep in mind that physician pass rate is about 98% for the same exam. So guess what happened? In 2014, they discontinued this examination. It was discontinued for, quote, low utilization. So limited utility as if it's not valuable because it can't be passed. So therefore, we'll just not do a head-to-head. We'll not compare apples to apples or even try uh, because, you know, the educations are completely not comparable. Well, what's interesting is that these uh, nurse practitioning DNP candidates had already passed some version of their FNP tests. Yes. And that's the test that they use to state now that they're equivalent to us. So it's not even this more complex, watered down version of what we have. They're going back to a master's degree that, that in the beginning, the reason why they wanted to create the DNP was they didn't think the master's degree was, was enough. And now because they cannot develop this doctorate program to that level, they're going back to the master's degree FNP and trying to pass that off as equivalent. You're exactly right. So we've gone through the three steps, and this is what we need to be licensed as physicians. But most doctors don't just stop at getting a medical license. Almost every physician becomes board certified. And that means that they complete a residency period of training and it's credentialed, it follows standardization. And then they have to pass a board examination at the end of that period to be board certified. Roy, you're an otolaryngologist, an ENT physician. Tell us what the ENT board exam is like. Well, again, you have to qualify for it. So most ENT physicians do five or six years of postgraduate training, and that involves being supervised by countless number of surgeons, learning how to do surgery, learning how to do clinical work. And at the end of every year, you take an in-service exam, which compares you to the other residents in, in the country, and you have to get a score that is respectable or you could lose your residency position. And the test is not easy. Um, at the end of those five to six years, you take the written exam in ENT. And it, it is an all-day test. 
and it's written by specialists in the field like myself. And we focus on three components, knowledge, um, application, and comprehension. So to the lay public, knowledge is, suppose you have conjunctivitis, what is that? It's an eye infection. That's knowledge, that, that's, you have knowledge. Um, application is, well, what do you do about it? Well, you treat it. Do you treat it with antibiotics? Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? Comprehension is where we like to test doctors. And that is more deductive reasoning. Does your, pa does your patient suffer from comorbidities like diabetes? Are they currently pregnant? What would be the complications if you don't treat this or you treat it ineffectively? And so the, um, when we write the boards for otolaryngology, we have 70% of the questions have to be in comprehension and not just knowledge-based. Once you pass that exam, you go out to practice, and in the middle of it, the middle of your practice year, you're called back for your oral exams. And you have four stations where you're tested in ear, nose, throat, and facial plastics. And those questions are based on clinical settings. And what we're watching is how well you function under pressure. And of course, we're going to throw complications at you. That's what happens because we want to see what you do when things don't go well. And we fail people because when we put out a product of a board certified otolaryngologist in the United States, we want a certain standard. And, and thank goodness you do, because I, I certainly want to know that my ENT physician knows what they're doing and same as my family physician or my pediatrician. And so uh, Naran, tell us about your pediatric board exams. Well, it's not quite as uh, involved as <laughs> Roy is describing, but it's it's two days and it's eight hours both days. And again, it's it's rigorous and we have to pass it. And obviously, if we don't pass it, then we don't end up being board certified as a pediatrician. And it's that kind of second step that you talk about, right? It's not just knowing that, you know, 90% of normal children walk by 15 months, right? That's burned into my brain forever. But it is the child can do this, 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 and this. Roughly how old is the child? So it kind of makes you, it, you really have to know your knowledge well. And um, and so, again, I mean, I, I think it's, it's something that we put out a certain standard of uh, excellence and of knowledge and then application of that knowledge, which is what's so important. Right. The and, and, what, and what we don't realize with primary care physicians, such as the two of you, is the extensive base yeah. of, what, of knowledge you need to have. And you guys make it look easy. And, and why that is so is because, honestly, I'd say 80% of the patients you see are pretty straightforward. And, you know, it's that 20% that you guys have to pick up on. And that's what your tests test, because... I write questions for your exams and I know what I'm writing. I am not writing the standard ENT questions. And that's the difference when you see a physician versus a nurse practitioner or a PA in pediatrics or family medicine. And I don't think the medical community or the patients really appreciate the base of knowledge of, of what primary care has to know. Yeah, it's really rigorous. So for family medicine, the boards are nine hours. There are 320 questions. For internal medicine, the exams are 10 hours. Uh, to su for subspecialists, they have to take an additional four hours of questioning. And as Roy mentioned, for some specialties like psychiatry and surgical fields, there are oral board examinations. And uh, those are really an important part of their testing. 
just for contrast, nurse practitioner exams, uh, there are a couple options that they can choose. And the family nurse practitioner exam is three to four hours long, and it's 200 questions. In 2015, the pass rates, they have two different exams. The pass rates were 75% for one exam and 81% for the other exam. And what's interesting is that Lehman College, their family nurse practitioner program just lost its accreditation because their graduates were not achieving an adequate pass rate. They had to have at least an 80% pass rate from their college to be accredited. So they went on probation and then they got their levels up to 78%, but because they still hadn't met that 80%, they did lose their accreditation. I I know that they're appealing that, but um, the point is that Again, consider the the nurse practitioner boards kind of like our step three exam in which physicians are about a 98% pass rate. And here we have 75% for one of the board certifications um, that they have. And then we should talk about PA boards, I think, as well. I mean, I think that that's a worthwhile thing to add on, which is there's, you know, one certifying exam for them at the end of school, the physician assistant national certification examination, which is known as the PANCE, P-A-N-C-E. It's a five-hour, 300-question test, which has to be taken every 10 years to recertify. And 93% of test takers pass. And then after graduating from school and then passing this test, uh, they can apply for a license to practice. And as we're seeing in some states, that means independent practice. And they have to take their exam every 10 years. Uh, Physicians also must take exams periodically. It's either every seven to 10 years, depending but nurse practitioners don't have to repeat their exams. They only have to take it one time. And then recertification is just them uh, submitting their hours and those hours can be volunteer hours. So there's no additional certification requirements. And you know, I would like to say that um, the three of us, I know that we all agree that nurse practitioners and physician assistants are valued members of our teams, but those teams need to be physician led. And what we're trying to convey here is the education and testing processes for these auxiliary healthcare practitioners does not meet our standards for allowing them to see patients independently, but they are valued members of our team and they do great things, but they need to be supervised by physicians. Well, and that goes with what we found. Again, what I've shared with people a lot is it's not an opinion to say physician-led teams are safe. It's actually what the science has evaluated. So it's evaluated the ability of nurse practitioners and PAs to practice, which we absolutely find valuable. But five decades of research shows that they provide safe and very high-quality healthcare when supervised by physicians. And that's what's been studied. So that's what we know. Thank you so much. I appreciate both of you being with us. For our listeners out there, please visit our YouTube channel, Patients at Risk, where you can see this discussion and also some additional information, which goes over some sample board questions for nurse practitioners and physicians. And we've included some interesting screenshots that you may want to check out. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to our YouTube channel. Please get our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about this information, please visit our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.